Last week, I talked about how some genres are enduring and have been with us since before the cinema even existed. Today, I'm going to talk about something that has been around for as long as there have been cave paintings of prehistoric beasts that once roamed our Earth. It's time to talk about giant monsters. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of And Now the Movie, the show where I re-watch my massive movie library one title at a time. Since Warner Brothers has released the brand new Godzilla vs. Kong in cinemas and on HBO Max, I thought this was the perfect time to provide some insight on these behemoths and why they even exist in our culture. And yes, I own every single uh, movie and show version of either character, plus all their spinoffs and inspirations. Now, I will warn you that there's a ton of information to cover here, so I've decided to break this up into two separate episodes, one today and one later on. This is Attack of the Giant Monsters, Part 1. As I alluded to in the intro, mankind's fascination with monsters has been around forever, Cave drawings of mammoths and giant cave bears, imagery of dinosaurs carved into ancient monuments across the globe, ancient texts like the Old Testament and the Bible, speaking of giant leviathans. If you look at various mythologies, there are giants, there are cyclops, dragons, hydras, krakens, countless other examples of bizarre giant beasties. Now, fast forward to 1925, and you have what is probably the first true film version of a giant monster picture, with an adaptation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. This silent film version was created by director Harry O'Hoyt and screenwriter Marion Fairfax. It starred Wallace Berry, who was a huge star at the time, Bessie Love, Lloyd Hughes, and Louis Stone, among many others. Arguably, you won't find those tidbits that interesting, um, but what is key here is who actually created the giant monsters seen in the film, because this is what relates to our topic today. These monsters, which are essentially dinosaurs and other prehistoric creatures, were created by legendary technician Willis O'Brien. This was O'Brien's very first feature film, but it certainly was not his last. Prior to The Lost World, O'Brien spent several years perfecting his art of stop-motion animation across various dinosaur-centric short films. This would especially come in handy in 1933 when he brought to life one of cinema's most iconic creatures and the main focus of this first half of our show, King Kong. In order to discuss the story of Kong in the 21st century, I, I think it's important to understand the time and the context in which this first film was created. So, before we continue on, on his films, uh, I have to share a brief disclosure. 
As I was not around during the time uh, I'm about to discuss, the time frame, and I recognize that I have not had to endure anything close to the hardships of the peoples I'm about to discuss, this is a disclosure that I am only touching on um, these subjects from an academic film analyst perspective, knowing full well that these are not even the tip of the iceberg as to what actually happened and what they actually went through and suffered. I am in no way meaning to offend or downgrade anyone. In fact, I feel that I try to make extra effort to be inviting and opening and all-inclusive. And this show, and now the movie, is completely inclusive and open to anyone of any background or creed or religion or anything. This is simply my wish to provide some context for you should you decide to watch some of the films discussed today. Uh, again, if, if you're not up for this brief political history lesson, I completely understand. You are welcome to skip ahead roughly two minutes and 20 seconds or so. Otherwise, we will carry on. And once again, thank you for listening to and supporting And Now the Movie, a show that aims to appeal to everyone of any background or nationality, race, gender, uh, religion, creed, however you identify. I hope you can identify with the content on this show and that I hope you can find some movies over the course of the show that relate to you. And now back to the show. Still with me? Great. First off, the film was released in April of 1933, just over a month to the date of when uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the president at the time, enacted the New Deal, a series of regulations, financial reforms, public work projects, and other programs designed to help restabilize the American economy. This New Deal effectively ended the Great Depression, although its long-lasting effects wouldn't dissipate until the early 1940s when the United States entered World War II. More on that later. 1933 is also important context for the way it portrays different genders and ethnicities in this picture. Hollywood was then, even more so than it is today, a white-dominated industry. While there were many exceptions to come out of Hollywood, especially as it grew, the vast majority of the pictures in, at that time featured white men front and center with white women alongside. Now, that is not to say all female roles were weak, because that is absolutely not true, uh, but the fact that women had only been able to vote for about 13 years might give you an idea of how certain ideologies were ingrained in the subconscious psyche of the masses. And of course, African Americans wouldn't see their equal rights begin to take strides for a few more decades, something they are still struggling with today. Even Asian Americans, who have sadly been the victims of a recent uptick in hate crimes, faced several hardships during the years preceding, including the Immigration Act of 1924, an infamous Supreme Court case called uh, Loom v. Rice in 1927, and in 1933, another case ruling Filipinos ineligible for citizenship in the United States. Just all of these incredibly difficult situations and sad, sad realities were in the backdrop, culturally, 
as moviegoers went to cinemas to see King Kong in 1933. So keep that in the back of your mind as we move forward in our discussion. So, behind the scenes in the United States, uh, things were less than stellar. What does all that have to do with a movie about a giant monster terrorizing New York City? Well, despite the filmmaker's statements to the contrary, many critics, audience members, and film historians feel that the original King Kong uses the monster as a manifestation of the white man's xenophobia, which is basically a fear of the other or fear of the unknown, and that was directed toward a lot of the uh, culturally different immigrants that were arriving in America at the time. And uh, it was a fear that a lot of sort of white, elitist-thinking men and women in America, uh, they all shared that fear. And one famous example of someone who really took that fear a long way is H.P. Lovecraft, another man who created an entire mythos of giant monsters. Um, we're going to get to... Lovecraft in a whole nother show, so I won't touch on him here. Well, I can absolutely understand why, you know, the entire depiction of Kong could be taken this way. I mostly want to celebrate the technical achievements in this film, rather than the problematic depictions of all the people in, in the film. Celebrate the technical achievements and how this was pretty much the genesis of what we know and love about monster movies today. Kong is a giant ape from an uncharted island in the West Indies called Skull Island. Though, interesting enough, I recently rewatched the original King Kong and its immediate fast-tracked sequel, Son of Kong. When I say fast-tracked, it was released in the exact same year to capitalize on the success of the first film. Anyhow, when I rewatched these films, I noticed that Skull Island was not actually referred to as Skull Island in either film. So, I did a little further research, and I discovered that it was only referred to as Skull Island originally during some promotional materials provided by the parent studio, RKO. Interesting enough, the film does feature a map of the island, and on this map, there is a little area of the island that is designated as Skull Mountain. Over the course of Kong's various sequels, remakes, and reimaginings, his island home also goes through a few name changes. Um, in Son of Kong, the immediate sequel, they only refer to it as Kong's Island. It's called Faroo Island in 1962 and Mondo Island in 1967 in the two uh, prominent Japanese film versions of Kong, which I will get to a little later on. The Beach of the Skull in 1976. That's the first American remake. And it wasn't until we received some animation adaptations, some comic books and novels, and Peter Jackson's early 2000s film remake, naming the island Skull Island properly. Of course, in the current cinematic rendition of Kong, his island plays a huge role in both Kong Skull Island and in the now-released Godzilla vs. Kong. So, 
initially Kong's story stayed pretty much the same. He's just a giant gorilla minding his own business when some guy named Carl Denham, played by Robert Armstrong in both the 1933 films and uh, played by Jack Black in Peter Jackson's 2005 version, well, Carl Denham and his film crew come to Skull Island to capture Kong on camera uh, to create the next great motion picture extravaganza of Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. And of course, nothing goes as planned. Natives who fear and worship Kong end up sacrificing lead actress Anne Darrow, played by the original Scream Queen, Faye Ray, in 1933, and Naomi Watts in 2005, respectively, to appease Kong when uh, this, of course, just sends the film crew on a rescue mission where over half of them get stomped on, eaten by dinosaurs or other giant prehistoric critters. Also, poor Anne Darrow. She's a literal starving artist, never caught her big break. Uh, she's spotted by Carl Denham while she's basically trying to steal food for herself to live off of. And then he basically shanghais her into being a part of this movie, and then she's kidnapped again by a giant ape and almost eaten by at least a half a dozen creatures. Anyway, long story short, Anne is rescued, Kong is captured, and he's brought back to New York City and put on display, which, of course, goes terribly. There's even a line from the captain of the ship, no chains will be able to hold Kong. Well, sure enough... Kong goes on a rampage, and not to disclose a major spoiler here, but uh, the movie has been out for uh, 90 years. Essentially, Kong likes to climb big mount big uh, mountains on his island, so he climbs tall buildings on Manhattan Island, and there's airplanes, and there's shooting, and I think you get the picture. There are a few differences in the 1976 remake, though. Uh, first of all, the building is different. In the original 33 version, the building was uh, the Empire State Building, and in the 76 remake, it was uh, the World Trade Center. Remember that? Uh, next, all of the character names are changed, and thirdly, there is no film crew seeking fame or fortune. Uh, instead, it's, it's a team seeking a rich oil deposit and they stumble across Kong. So that's a little bit different. The 76 remake also features Jeff Bridges, very young Jeff Bridges with a big old beard, long, shaggy hair, and Jessica Lange in her very first starring role. Several years later, this remake actually had a sequel called King Kong Lives, which was critically panned and is widely maligned among viewers. There are a few of us, though, that have a soft spot for the film, which features Linda Hamilton and Brian Kerwin. I, I can't help but wonder if some of the, the ill feelings toward the film could have been avoided had, had they made it uh, in closer proximity to the '76 film. I mean, it was, it was, it was quite a while. I think it was about a decade after, if not more. And uh, by then, no one really cared to continue the story. And uh, it was just a whole mess. Now, the only version of this I still have is a VHS tape because it's, it's hard to get here in the States. But um, fingers crossed that maybe sometime down the line we'll get a remastered edition on Blu-ray or something. I'll discuss these in more detail later, but uh, it's worth noting Kong had a second life thanks to Japan and Toho Studios 
with a few different film adaptations. Uh, the earlier ones have sadly been lost to time, as they were made right around the time of the original Kong. Uh, while while the latter the later films have become something of cult classics, even tying into an animated series jointly created by Toho and Rankin Bass, the names behind some of your favorite classic Christmas specials. As you can see, I, I could go on and on and on about Kong. As a kid, the stop-motion artistry I mentioned earlier by Willis O'Brien absolutely astonished me. The uncanny realness of the models in motion uh, just captured my imagination so much, I wanted to make giant monster movies too. And I mean, I'm not the only person this film inspired. If you look at all the greats of today, I mean, you even have Peter Jackson. His love of the original Kong was so great that he, his 2005 version is essentially that original story, just Lord of the rings up. <laughs> it's triple the budget, it's twice as long, the extended cut is even longer. Frankly, I think it's great. A lot of people think it's too boring or too long or whatever, but Peter Jackson makes long epics. I mean, why do we love the extended cut of Lord of the Rings? There's a lot of spots in there that arguably drag on a bit, but uh, still entertaining. I think the same goes for his version of King Kong. Of course, Guillermo del Toro comes to mind with modern filmmakers that were inspired by Kong, and of course, all of the... Uh, Monsterverse directors had to have at least some affinity for these characters. But that's not exactly who I'm talking about. We're going to go back to after the original Kong. 30s have now come and gone. We're, we're moving closer and closer to the real explosion of giant monsters. I'm going to take a quick break, but when I come back... I'm going to tell you all about the, the next couple influential people that have really shaped the monster movie. Stick around. As I was saying, many people were inspired by Willis O'Brien's technical achievements in the original King Kong. I know it influenced me a lot, but I doubt it influenced anyone as much as the then 13-year-old Ray Harryhausen. Ray Harryhausen was so inspired by Kong's movements and the movements of the other dinosaurs in the film, he created his own models and filmed them. His father would help create the metal armatures, that would serve as the bones of his creations, and his mother would sew clothing on certain characters when needed. Eventually, Ray was able to share his creations with Willis O'Brien, who was so impressed that he took Ray under his wing and allowed him to work on his team. Together, they would earn an Academy Award for Best Effects, Special Effects, a category that didn't exist when O'Brien made Kong in 33. That film is also very much worth your time if you're into giant monsters, which I imagine you are if you're listening to me blab on about them today. Anyway, the film 
is Mighty Joe Young, released in 1949. Ray Harryhausen went off on his own to create something that would further capture the imagination of audiences around the globe, and set the stage for the giant monster revolution that was only a few years away. Enter the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. In the film, scientists performing atomic tests awaken a mysterious beast from a bygone era who ventures off the ocean to the mainland where it wreaks havoc on a coastal city. Does that sound familiar? The film was released in 1953 in the United States, so just before the movie that you're probably thinking of. A fun fact about the origins of Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, legendary sci-fi author Ray Bradbury had written a short story of the same name that was published in 1951 in an edition of the Saturday Evening Post. At the same time, a film was being developed by Warner Brothers called The Monster from Beneath the Sea. During pre-production on the film, Ray Harryhausen spotted Bradbury's short story and brought it to the attention of the film's producers. Eager to capitalize on Bradbury's namesake, they quickly bought the rights to the short story, which was retitled The Foghorn, for future print anthologies. Bradbury was credited in the film in a unique manner. It read, Suggested by the Saturday Evening Post story by Ray Bradbury. Harryhausen and Bradbury had crossed paths a couple times before, but it was their collaboration on this project that sealed their lifelong friendship. And for this film, the two created a new kind of dinosaur called Redosaurus, that's R-H-E-D-O-Saurus, uh, which varied greatly from early turtle-inspired designs of the, the titular monster, and it also deviated from the more uh, Brontosaurus, Apatosaurus-inspired shapes in Bradbury's original short story. This Redosaurus honestly looks more like a cross between a Tyrannosaurus rex and a prehistoric crocodile stomping around on all fours. A couple additional film facts about uh, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. The dinosaur skeleton featured in the museum scene was on loan from RKO, where that same skeleton had used, been used as a set piece in the 1938 classic Bringing Up Baby. The drawings and sketches used in the same scene were created by artist Charles Knight, an inspiration for Ray Harryhausen. Harryhausen utilized newer technology. I think he may have used it with Willis O'Brien on Mighty Joe Young, but uh, he really advanced it during the making of The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. For instance, on King Kong, Willis O'Brien used rear projection to display the stop-motion footage uh, behind the actors, and then also a mixture of different compositing of shots. Um, Harryhausen's way proved to be a little bit more effective and easier for just one man to use. Instead of shooting the stop motion first and then having it being projected in front of the audience, which, or the actors rather, uh, honestly, as is someone who has acted in the past, it might be kind of nice to have an image of the creature that I'm supposed to be looking at rather than, you know, now, a little X on the green screen or a little ball on a stick. This technique of the projection 
onto a screen in front of the actors was used in a lot of jungle pictures too. If a if a lion was running at the camera or a rhino or an elephant or whatever, it was it was just designed in a lot of ways um, to keep the actors safe and to also get exotic footage that maybe was cheaper to send just a quick wildlife crew rather than all of the stars. But Willis O'Brien had used it to his to his advantage. Uh, to create depth and to, to allow more natural reactions from the performers. Now, Harryhausen, what he would do is he would have the film crew film everything on location first as if something were there for them to interact with, and then later he would essentially reprint the film multiple times. I know this is a little difficult to explain audibly. I'm probably going to do a video on this later, but... Uh, I'll try my best to do it audibly today. So picture a table, just a flat table. On the table, there's a clay model of the Retosaurus, the T-Rex crocodile creature from the movie. Now behind this beast, projected onto a glass backdrop, it's behind the table, behind the dinosaur, there's a glass, and, uh, you know, we have the, the background of the filming location projected onto the glass. Now, on the opposite side, in the front of the table, in front of the dinosaur and in front of the table, there's an empty plane, empty pane, rather, of glass. As Harryhausen animated the dinosaur with stop-motion animation, he would mask or block off certain portions of the glass during photograph. He would repeat the process as he animated the beast and ran the film through the camera, and by blocking off different portions of the glass. So the end product uh, makes it appear, once everything's combined through multiple passes of the film, it, uh, it appears as if the beast is actually on location with the actors in between buildings, in the foreground and in the background, and other surrounding environments. It's a really cool effect um, that's worth seeing. After all, seeing is believing. So, check out The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms as soon as you can. It's, it's really an iconic film. Uh, it also features a very small role from a young Lee Van Cleef, uh, who uses a sniper rifle to do some things. But um, some iconic locations. One that was carried over from the short story, which sees the Beast fighting a lighthouse. Not much of a fight, but... Uh, the lighthouse doesn't stand a chance, let's put it that way. And another iconic scene at the docks, and the last iconic scene, I think, is at an amusement park. It's an excellent film. Um, I really love it. And honestly, the effects still really stand out today, but that's the, the, the majesty of a Ray Harryhausen film. So without giving too much of the plot away, there are certain elements that echo what Harryhausen's mentor did earlier with King Kong and Mighty Joe Young, which, of course, he also worked on. Um, the film was a hit, and it went on to inspire a whole slew of American giant monster films, like Them, another favorite of mine, uh, The Deadly Mantis, Tarantula, The Giant Gila Monster, and just countless other gigantic atomic creatures from the 1950s. Harryhausen would even create a couple of those... Um, Giant Beast movies, again. One was It Came From Beneath the Sea, which was about a giant octopus, which 
technically wasn't an octopus, but I'm I'm going to highlight Harryhausen in a future episode, so I'll I'll dig into that there. And another standout film with a giant monster that he created was 20 Million Miles to Earth, about an unfortunate creature brought back from a mission to Venus. And of course, later on, he would bring the Kraken to the big screen in Clash of the Titans and just so many more iconic creatures. One last note about Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Originally, the Beast was supposed to spew flames from his nostrils, but unfortunately the budget did not allow for that. This didn't stop the marketing team from using it in preliminary posters, however, and it's probably a good thing they did, too, because if they hadn't, we might have missed out on the most iconic giant monster of all time, dare I say, the king of the monsters. The battle for the monster crown was started in 1962 with the Toho American International Joint Production, King Kong vs. Godzilla, and continues now nearly 60 years later with legendaries Godzilla vs. Kong. Upstate New York is home to local musical royalty with singer-songwriter Mike Gibson. He is known for performing in award-winning bands like The Action, The Amazing Shakes, and Against the Giants, but tonight I'm focused on his solo music, particularly his latest solo album, Feb 6, Grief and Nonsense. This is the sixth in a series of annual February albums, and it features three songs that pertain to our topic of giant monsters this week and next week, and the song specifically I'm looking at, depicts the battle for the crown between Godzilla and Kong. Well, sort of. Here's a snippet from his track that asks a question we've been asking for 60 years. Why won't the studios let them kiss? Here's Mike Gibson's King Kong vs. Godzilla, Just Let Us Kiss. I thought I Took her in my arms And we climbed to the top of the world But she let me down She wasn't my Atomic breath and- 
Once again, that was a portion of King Kong vs. Godzilla, Just Let Us Kiss, by Mike Gibson, featuring Mark Turley. You can find his latest album, Feb 6, Grief and Nonsense, on Spotify, linked in the description, and you can purchase this and all of his music on his Bandcamp page, which I've also linked in the description. His other solo music and music with his bands The Action and The Amazing Shakes are also available to listen across Apple Music and Spotify. Go check them out. Since I can obviously get long-winded on the topic of giant monsters, I'm breaking this into two of these giant monster-sized episodes. And uh, if, if I didn't have a time limit, I probably wouldn't ever stop talking about giant monsters. So be grateful you're just getting two long episodes. So, we're going to pause here on this episode of And Now the Movie. Up next, the second part to Attack of the Giant Monsters, where I dive right into Godzilla's origins, his legacy, and how all of these topics have led us to where we are with the MonsterVerse today. In the meantime, Godzilla vs. Kong is absolutely dominating the box office and the streaming charts. It's good to see the numbers up again. If you do end up watching Godzilla vs. Kong before I do, please don't spoil anything. I think we're going to watch it in a couple days. Um, however, if you're still wanting to learn more before you watch, don't worry. Part two of this two-part series will be out soon, so stay tuned. Until then, I'll leave you with one question. What will you watch this week? Much on the outside. I love your giant glowing spikes. But all I ever wanted is a giant monster to hold me tight. If you let me be that monster, we could run away. Hand in hand, we destroy anything that stands in our way. In a world where Do what feels right This time let's put away Atomic breath and fist Maybe this time They'll just let us kiss